We're going to talk on let it stand. Have you ever found some of those Old Testament scriptures that you're just like, those are odd scriptures. You can't even figure out how on earth could I even possibly use a scripture like that? Like, you'll never say it because you're never going to say there's a scripture in the Bible that you don't think speaks to you. But some of these things, you're like, some of them can even be offensive. So people do this with them. They just ignore them. And, you know, I was looking at my mom's house. We had visitors to our house and said, what's in this big box here? I know it's some family secret. They open up the box, and there's this family Bible that's probably 10 inches thick. It's my great-grandfather's father. But sitting on top of the Bible, my mother had liquid paper. And with liquid paper, stuff goes, oh, what a combination, a Bible and liquid paper together. So we'll have to check and see if y'all liquid paper any of these type scriptures out. But people do ignore them. They're not as brazen as my mom on, you know, just flat, you know, putting her liquid paper on top of it for any use that she has. But anyway, when people think a scripture is against them, like it bothers them. And a lot of people would say this scripture here that I'm going to use tonight would be like, oh, wow, we can't use it in this environment. It would never go over. But I saw this concept in the Bible and I found it very freeing. And I also saw it as a layer of protection for me. My dad was actually teaching me this principle, not only teaching it, but doing this principle on me. I found this verse and it explains to me what my dad was doing to protect me. And if it's not taught, he'll be the only dad in the whole United States doing this. And I've just never, ever heard anybody take this into consideration. So I'm going to give you a verse, and it's a one-time verse. There's some things that are sort of on the same line, but not really. So it's in Numbers 30, verse 4. And this is our foundational theme verse. And it talks about if a woman is in her father's house during her youth, or if a woman is under her father's authority or under his roof, and her father hears her make a vow, And her obligation binds her. Like she makes a commitment to somebody. She promises them something. It doesn't give you any context to, you know, was she under pressure? Did she think it was a good deal? But the woman gives some kind of a something that binds her. Notice the next thing. And if the father says nothing. Now, if this is not the picture of fathers saying nothing, they hear it, but they say nothing to her. Then all her vows shall stand, and every obligation by which she has bound herself shall stand. Because we're talking about let it stand. So if a father does nothing, if he says nothing, doing nothing, interesting context. But, verse 5, is a different kind of father. If her father should forbid her on the day he hears it, none of her vows or any of her obligations by which she's bound herself shall stand. And the Lord will forgive her because her father has forbidden her. However, she should marry while under her vows or of the rash statement of her lips by which she bound herself. And it goes into what will happen there. Because you're seeing a transfer of authority at that point. So tonight we're going to speak about certain vows that we make that actually make us be obligated. And have you ever made a promise or commitment and wished you hadn't? You know, wished you could reel it back in. Wish you hadn't have said it. Just thought, later, why did I ever say that? Or sometimes it takes years and years of maturity to figure out I should have never said that. But in this case, the thing that you've got to be understanding in order to understand this verse is the thing called authority. You may not even have an idea what authority is in your home. What's authority? You may be thinking it's the person that yells the loudest. 
the one who decides where you're going to eat. Who has the authority and what on earth is authority? And, you know, we would say, well, it's only understood in a Christian home. It's not that it's a Christian home that does this. I find most Christian homes do verse 4. They say nothing. And it also, there's such a thing as bad authority. So what is authority? This can be a law in the natural world, and it can also be a law in the spiritual world. What we read tonight can be something that you make something happen in the natural or make something happen in the spiritual. In the natural, you're going to see this custom practiced a lot more in the Middle East, even today. But to our Western minds, we're like, heaven forbid someone could tell me I I didn't say what I just said. And you have just a complete different mentality of people that have no relationship with God or understanding of authority. That wasn't my opinion. I'm not the one thinking that, that this thing is so bad. But some people, in fairness to them, some of them have never had a dad that was worthy of carrying this authority. Like he was too narcissistic or he was too into himself or he was quiet and selfish. You can have these types and they don't ever have what we're talking about here. So tonight's lesson is if a woman vows a vow. If someone that's under authority makes some kind of a commitment. It's in Numbers 30 verse 4. And this particular scripture is addressing a father with his wife and a father with his daughter. And there's actually four distinct cases that are being contemplated. And so they make it very laid out. They will discuss the fact that what kind of terms of whose authority is she really under. And there's certain cases where her authority stands and it will be treated just like a man's. So as it lays it out, I'm going to just concentrate on the one who has a protective covering over her. What would happen in your life if you have an authority figure who doesn't allow something. They flat say no to what you said. Well, I can tell you whether you'd be happy or not. If we'd put a little microphone on you all week and recorded everything you said, and you were going to go to judgment day just based on last week, you might be real happy that there was someone forbid. Strike that, cancel that, because you don't have control of your mouth. Your mouth is not saved. (laughs) (laughs) your mouth is a big component in you getting saved, but you may have no control over your mouth. What about a man who has no control of his mouth? Then he doesn't understand authority. The way that my dad used it with me, I started realizing that it actually was a protection to me. When I read this verse, I was like, oh, wow, great. This is a very unique verse because I always thought being submitted to authority was one of the best things that could happen to me. And the reason I thought it was the best thing that could happen is it gave me another layer of someone praying over me, another layer of someone caring about me, another layer of someone keeping an eye on what I was doing. So I always saw submission to authority as wonderful. I never thought about it in terms of bless these poor people's heart who really have this jerk (laughs) or have no one that ever stands up. So in my experience in my world growing up, I counseled a lot of people that weren't blessed But I just took for granted the strength that my dad had over me. So while I was in my father's house, I had a lot of layers of protection. But one thing that I started noticing with this is a lot of times you go through a second round. Like it's forbid here, but it'll come back a second time. Now we'll hold that thought, but we'll come back to it. So you have authority in the natural realm. And you know, this is how most people are thinking. 
My, Lance, the little lady bought three vacuums from that vacuum salesman, and she signed a contract, and you can't get out of it. Man, I'm going to go get my money back. It says right here that I'm not bound by what she just signed. And that's how men looked at it. My property actually bought more property with my money. <laughs> and I've noticed with men, if you want their attention, there's one place to hit them. They'll get their attention every time. Their pocketbook. And so they're very aware of their pocketbook. So you have something in the natural, but you have something in the spiritual. In understanding this principle, you're asking yourself, why would something not need to stand? Like, okay, I bought three vacuums. He was a good salesman. You know, or my uncle needed money and I just gave away all my husband's savings account. You know, you have these little things that you do and it gets everybody real excited. But you have different pressure points. But that's the natural. What does it say in the spiritual realm? I'm going to say right now, the person of authority needs to know how to forbid. I made a statement once that one way I look at a man is I judge his ability to say no. It's not what a man can say yes to. It's what a man can say no to that shows you the strength of a man. So the authority is very important. And I love the idea of forbid. Like forbid is such a great word. He just forbids it. The person in authority and the person protected by their authority is growing and we're growing in things and you will have some time that you are being protected by those in authority. Now, there's a big difference between the man you're born to and the people you choose to submit your authority to. Like you make that choice of I'm going to submit myself to this person's authority. And that can be good if you have good discernment. That can be good if they have good discernment. So in here is the unique relationship between two people, the one in authority and the one protected. I made a point that I was thinking about on this. This guy is not a young man because he has a wife and a daughter. Like, I know this is a shock, but age should bring maturity. He starts to realize his responsibility and his obligation and so he really sees his daughter as something worthy of being protected. A lot of times I have young men and they want to work with youth. But when they start working with the girls, they're like, girl, girl, she'll see how great I am and how good I preach. And she'll fall for me immediately. So he's real excited because he hasn't yet seen the people in the youth group as somebody he has to answer for. He has authority that he protects them. When you realize, oh, this is someone's daughter. Like, I've got to answer for this person. So authority in a home, authority in uh, churches, you can see it abused and you can see it done right. What is not authority and what some of you are thinking, oh, I know what authority is. It's that thing where someone tells you what to do. They just cut you off before you ever even get the sentence out of your mouth. Like, I've never seen someone say so many no's to me in my life. And that's what they think of as authority, but a lot of times what all they've experienced is control. Control or neglect. It's usually one of the other, an absent father. So I'm going to tell you to borrow from the Bible and learn about authority or borrow my dad. I have a few things that my dad wrote that will help you learn your authority. That God has people that will help protect you 
and you also have people that you watch over. So being under authority, I would say sometimes there's men who can never work for another man when they're young. So that will follow them all their life. And that's something where they have a problem with authority. Because if they were ever abused in the name of authority, they can't ever get the idea of how to submit to good authority. And what you usually end up happening is they submit to people that aren't here in the Lord, and they don't submit to those who are. For some reason, it doesn't come out straight. So that's one way to look at it if you're one of those guys who you're saying, I want authority in my life. What would make God trust me with authority? I would say learn to be under authority. Now, at the same time, under authority, it's important that you learn to be in authority. Just like you're learning to be under it, you've got to learn to be in it. Like they're never going to be the kind of dad that their family needs. They're going to use what went wrong the rest of their life as a crutch, and they're never going to learn the art of being in authority. So this is not judgmental. This is understanding authority. So this little bitty statement here is a very good one. It says, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or he swears an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word. He must do everything he promised to do. That's why you sometimes think, oh, my lands, that poor guy, he's being treated so unfair. Let him. He's got to hold to his word. He's got to feel respect. You won't understand it so much in Bible study until you do it. And once you start doing it, then these words will come back to you. You'll hear them speak to you. So you've got to live up to your promises. So we're seeing here, it's saying own it. The next thing that you get out of this verse of scriptures is saying nothing. Saying nothing is the same as you making the vow. This is an epidemic of a quiet father when it comes to spiritual things. You know it's wrong, but you won't say a word. Nobody can get you to. You will not speak up. So you're going to be punished. You're going to pay for those vacuum cleaner payments. <laughs> you're going to pay for that piece of property and that new car they bought. You're going to pay for these things because you don't have enough guts to say yes or no. And that's nothing. I'm not even worried about the natural. I'm concerned about the spiritual. So her father hears about her vow, her pledge, but says nothing to her. And then all the vows or pledges by which she has bound herself shall stand. So you obligate yourself and them because you're not man enough to have that child. You're not man enough to cover them. And you're not in your prayer life enough to know what needs to be done. These are serious words. The next question is, how long do you get to have your initial reaction? Like, can I at least take it interrogated a little bit? Can I at least throw it around? Sometimes it's hard on the spot to know. And in this scripture, when it seems to set up, when it seems to turn from wet concrete to solid concrete, <laughs> is in a day. It tends to give you one day. There's a part of the scripture that makes it look like you better do it on the spot, but there is another portion that it talks about in that day's time. So it means the quicker you react to it, usually the better it is. And then verse 7, And her husband hears of it, but he says nothing to her on that day. Then the vows stand. So you have that day to work with. He has confirmed them because he has said nothing to her on the day he heard about them. Now, there's a very strange verse with this. I don't know if you caught it. I tried to read it real fast so you wouldn't think on it. 
But in verse 5, it says, the Lord will forgive her. Hmm. Did you know it was a forgiveness issue? The Lord will forgive her. If the man does what he should, the Lord will forgive her. What a unique concept. If a woman marries while under a vow or a rash promise, she has bound herself. And y'all, we're getting ourselves bound, bound like crazy in this culture. We're being taken captive. And it does fall to the terms of rash promise. Rash is such an unusual word, rash promise. Now, I'm going to read you three verses right here together. You can just write them down, Proverbs 20, 25. And when I looked it up, it said the danger of emotional or rash vows. Have you ever made an emotional vow? Rash? Spoken hastily and entered into lightly. I just say what I feel because I'm very genuine. I just say everything that comes through my head. Bless the Father. He's got to work that out. And yet we're seeing generations of this. Deuteronomy 23, 23. It says you voluntarily vowed. Listen to this. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do because you made your vow freely to the Lord, your God, with your own mouth. In Ecclesiastes 5, 5. Now, I've had people come to me and say, is there any scripture to get me out of something? That's another lesson. So what I'm talking about on this is the fact that don't do it lightly. Don't be a person that's just profusely making rash decisions. You're discrediting your words. And what will happen is God can't trust your authority because your authority is used by your words. So if your mouth is spilling out just rash, everything you feel, every emotion, everything that just comes through your mind, your authority will never grow. And you need to be growing in your authority. So the rashness becomes the problem. And you don't need to just give service to anything that the devil is doing to you. Now, verse 16 it says, These are the statutes that the Lord commanded Moses concerning the relationship between a man and his wife. Would you have believed that this is the relationship? People would fail out really quick when you're really talking about having the strength to have authority. So this is the relationship between a father and a young daughter still in his home. So your dad has to have the ability to speak these words with your mom. And this is assuming that he sold out to the Lord. This does not work if this guy is thinking his wife does the whole spiritual climate of the home. I just handle business. She handles the spiritual. Many guys will say those words. But this is talking about the man is very solid in who he is with the Lord. Because you know what? They've taken stones and they've killed your most beloved soul. Remember, we talked about that scripture. Whom your soul loves, you pick up the stone. I'm joking. Yeah, you've got to be the first to hit him with the rock. <laughs> All right. So this is a agreement between bringing the right decision up. This would solve the Bible study of may the wisest decision win. Because if you don't have the strength, you're leaving her to a very precarious position to have to do all the work. So I'm going to say this. The commentaries on this verse are very boring. It sounds like you're reading case law. They have no application ideas. And they don't at all grasp any spiritual principle. It seems like they're protecting themselves from saying anything offensive. And there's no revelation on it. And yet, I probably use this verse every single day of my life. Whether I'm thinking it 
or not, I have to do it. When people submit to you, I have a responsibility to cover them with authority. And I feel generations of authority coming through my veins. And so it might come out a little bit strong, but it's my obligation to anyone that has submitted. And it's my pleasure. So the day that I realized it, in the natural, in the natural we do it. Now I'm going to put it in men's language. You should totally grasp this. After I read this, you will never have a problem understanding what you need to do again. You're in the locker room. You're losing 28 to zero. Your quarterback has given up. He started disparaging himself and saying how sorry he is. He's complaining. Everybody's whining. It's a mess. And you're the authority figure. You walk in. Does that 28 to zero score stand? If it does, you're fired. How many locker rooms have been turned around at halftime? A man understands my six-digit salary depends on me turning that score around. Now, they may have given mums to their girlfriends, but the coach is looking at them like, do you wear dresses? And so all the stuff that every little girl in the locker room saying, are you girls? You know, you know what your coach says. I'm, I'm cleaning it up. Are you giving up the fight? Is that who we are, men? And you realize that he must have served in the Marines. And his mind is on physical abuse. And he does not care how the lawsuits are going down. He has one objective because if he wins, they won't sue. Men, that's how they think. And the team goes on the attack. We can come back from this. We will get a hold of ourselves. I have more to offer than this. Steph on the volleyball team. Why was she honored into the Hall of Fame of volleyball? Because her words at five foot four, team captain, set me the ball. I'll turn this game around. Mm, your heart kind of beats, doesn't it? It's authority. It feels great. You are not afraid. Every coach who is losing at halftime could understand what I've just said on not letting something stand. This score is not standing. These words are not standing. The behavior is not standing. And this morale will turn around. That is my job. And I will turn the morale around in this locker room. Mama didn't set all the atmosphere. Mere words have the power to make winners out of losers. Just hours before utter defeat. Just in the last seconds of the game. The team transforms to what the coach declares. If it is done in sports, why is it not done in something as important as the game of life? Men, are you making your boys good at halftime? Are you making winners out of them? This is time for strength. So the problem is it's all about what we tolerate. We don't tolerate it in sports. Why do we tolerate it in other places? Why do we tolerate it in our covenant partners? Why do you have each other? Sometimes you look at them and say, you're better than this. Putting your agreement with something that's not worthy of you. Don't let it stand. It's what you put your agreement with that is so important. If I could say it the rest of my life, rash vows, your silence is your agreement. And Dad matured me up on this. Most of the time, Dad and I heard the same thing on all of our decisions. But on this particular occasion, <laughs> I made a rash decision when I was in college. I actually delayed my rash decision as long as I could possibly delay it because I did not want to go to the country that I was supposed to go to. 
And before you judge me, I would invite you to see India in all of its glory. I would invite you to be ready spiritually for the spiritual warfare in India. I would invite you to consider that my dad thought I was capable of taking a woman who was on the mission field as a missionary who had lost her ever-loving mind, and they had locked her in a room for months that dad thought I could deliver her. That was my dad's idea. I thought he just thought his daughter could do anything. I just thought, no way. I had mentors that were not very spiritual that told me, you're made for the debates in England. So under pressure, I made a rash decision, and I joined a team of this guy named either Gary or Greg, or, you know, he's so important to my life, I can't exactly remember, and I joined the mission team. He was older than me, and what got me about this mission team was something I had never experienced before. Everyone in there seemed to be more spiritual than me. I'm like, I am so carnal, and I couldn't stand them, because especially this one girl that would get up close to me, and she'd put her hands on me, and she would talk this spiritual language, and she would tell the wonders of all her spirituality. She scared me, and I'm like, Lord, help me. I'll never arrive at these people's level. My gosh. But I didn't know at the time until I had enough college kids that sometimes that kind of spirituality, sometimes people are flattering themselves by their own spirituality. And maybe if it doesn't feel genuine to you, it might not be. But at that stage, I just felt dirty dog guilty that I couldn't talk that language. So this guy was the leader of the team. He was a junior leader because, you know, they had one head guy that was paid a salary to make all these teams go out in the summertime. He was leading this in college. I felt like that he was insecure. And um, what happened was I happened to pray about it. It was different than the time I'd prayed about the team before. I actually prayed, prayed about it. You know how it is when you're serious. And I was in the chapel, and all of a sudden, I was praying, and I saw a vision of myself, my eyes open. And I saw a vision of myself in the corner of the room, and I was crying. And I saw myself crying for two and a half months. And I was so homesick. I was so depressed. I was scared it was going to do something to me mentally because of what my mom had been through. And I could feel that thing knocking on the door. So as I'm watching this vision and this very spiritual team, I realized there's no one on this team I trust for help. I'd never thought about that before. All of a sudden, the Lord speaks to me. And sometimes with a dream or something, he'll speak to me. Sometimes with a dream, he writes what he's saying, or sometimes I hear him. The Lord said, you're on the wrong team. Then he says to me, it's going to be very difficult to change teams at this point. We were within three to five weeks of flying out. We'd prepared all year long. They were even given shots. He said, it's going to be very difficult. And then that doesn't solve my problem because I still don't know what team I'm on. I just know I'm on the wrong team. That was the blessed assurance I had. Not. So I asked the Lord very fervently, which team am I supposed to be on? And by now, I'm crying so hard, looking at myself crying. I feel so sorry for that person crying. Like, (laughs) this is going to be a miserable summer. I asked the Lord, what do I do? Well, I'm blinded by my tears, and I can make out a form of a girl that I've never seen in my life. She looked kind of stocky and, you know, one of those people that's very sure of themselves. 
you know, short, take you down sort of person. And so they had a whole line of people up praying for people. And the Lord said, go get in her line and let her pray for you. Tell her what you've seen and then ask her what team she's on. And whatever team she tells you, join that team. And I'm like, risk, <laughs> risk. <laughs> Here I go from you're on the wrong team. This is going to be difficult. Go join the team. Well, when the leader heard about this, I realized he wasn't insecure. He was a controller. And he got so angry with me. He wasn't happy for the vision. He didn't even interrogate my vision. He just told me, you're going to go on a three-day fast. And I thought, I deserve it. I'm a wicked person. (laughs) (laughs) I've got problems in every corner. So he became very, very angry, and he wouldn't release me from his team. So how do I solve this? Being the compliant person I was at the time. Oh, I shall go to both team meetings. That way I'm getting used to this new team. And guess what? (laughs) The girl that I'm crying, she said, oh, we were the India team. And the team got canceled and we became the leadership of the team to the Philippines. I'm sitting there thinking, if I'd obey my dad, I'd be leadership right now. Oh, no, I become general flunky. I can't even tell you, when people want to punish you, in the name of the Lord, they can punish you. So I'm on a fast. I felt like I deserved it. And my dad occasionally would call me when I was at college, and he said, what are you doing? And I said, uh, you know, I didn't go to the lunchroom with my brother. And, And I told him, I said, well, my team leader about the missions trip told me that I'm supposed to fast. I wasn't eating. Watch this. This is the first time Dad hears about it. He told me, it's not the Lord. Go eat. Now, you wished you'd had this phone call two days before. <laughs> because have you ever fasted when God's not with you on the fast? It hurts. But I thought that made me more spiritual like these other people. So not eating was really not eating. And so I go, and I'm like, Dad, are you sure? And he said, yes. So I went to get my tray. And normally I don't struggle with fasting. Fasting is very easy for me, but I knew I'd come to a new spiritual point because this is very difficult. So when I went to eat, it's great. It's a huge cafeteria, and you have this buffet of foods. I'd never seen food like this. I mean, it was like anything you wanted all the time. So I weigh in then, five foot eight, 125 pounds. So I knew I could eat all I wanted. Y'all, I had my tray built with plates on top of plates to where literally it was a balancing act. And I wasn't through when I got them all on there. And I'm so happy with myself, so I'm whipping around the buffet bar to get a little more, and bam! Face-to-face, tray-to-tray, Greg and I are looking at each other. Oh, do you think he was mad? I don't have words for what he said his little fat tray of food and my little delicate tray of food. And we had whammed into each other. And let me just say this. That's when everything blew up. Blue, sky high. The anger in him, he thought I was at least trying with the fast. He thought I didn't even have it to do a fast. And now I'm telling him I'm on the wrong team. And he realizes his team is the wrong team. Dad had done an amazing job by hearing it and not letting it stand. And guess what he released me from? 
not a fast control. I went out from underneath that man's control. He had a hold over me, and I couldn't get out from under him. Dad protected me from this man, but guess what started? World War III conflict. I mean, boom, kaboom. I don't know what happened after that, but the conflict was unbelievable. But I stayed on my course because I knew by then Dad had been hearing. I should have done what he said. So the times of the Lord, first with the vision, Dad didn't let something I agreed to stand. He took it off the table. The man's way of controlling me was to start slander against me and lies. I'd never had that happen before. It's the first time. I didn't know people could make up things like that about you. They had no basis. I would have at least liked to have been where you said I was when I did this dastardly deed. He began to take me through all these slanderous accusations, and guess what happened to me? Now I'm completely kicked out of the missions program. I'm not going to be allowed to go to any team. And guess what happened? The head man of the entire program was silent and said nothing. I knew of his existence, but as these men are warring over me, the man does nothing to help me. When I went and I was on the other team, they put me on TV to raise money for the Philippines. And I told them that was what I used as leverage. You can't use my face and my stories of the Philippines to raise money and then kick me out of the program. So you can't have me up here on TV getting the viewers to send in all this money we'll never see, and you do this. And, of course, I've learned stuff. There's a lot of hidden costs that you don't know at this. My old guy, Greg, that had so much control over me, I couldn't understand why things were happening now bad to me in the next mission group until I found out Greg was roommates with my new mission leader, Russ. I didn't know in a big school that they were roommates. In their bargaining over this person, this reprobate, they decided that the way they would handle me is they wouldn't trust me. So all summer, I was put on probation. And I thought they were not telling the truth. I decided to get on that plane and fly anyway. That's the trip that literally changed my life. I've never had a missions experience where you were really in the dirt. I mean, China, they keep you in hotels, not here. I mean, we were up against every infirmity, plague, typhoon. I don't even have words for the months that I was spending in the Philippines because I had a mission I had to go see if God really existed and was he and I going to be in cahoots during my life well I did let the probation do something to me though inside of me without telling anyone I let those words stand and what those guys said about me I shouldn't have let happen because there was nothing to do with my life and I'm going to ask you to pardon me for the rawness of the expression that I used for what the leadership did but if I could tell you the kind of interviews these guys put me through, I'd never seen that type of pressure. After one particular session, and after all the interrogations, I was like, uh, I accepted the probation. I let it stand. But anyway, I did know something at that point. I knew I had a real enemy that was trying to wreck the trip before I ever flew out. And part of me is I blame myself for not having the strength to have done what my dad told me from the beginning. When the Lord said it was going to be difficult, I didn't know that would mean I'd be going over to the hospital and they'd be ramming me with shots in both arms. 
and it would make me so sick I could hardly stand up. They'd give me two or three. The nurse goes, I don't know if we can do this, but you have to by law have these, and you're fixing to go home to pack, and so they were ramming me with those shots. But lo and behold, the head of the missions department finally shows up. He flew over there, and he had one objective. He wanted to personally thank me for the courage that I'd had on another decision I made on the field that he said protected the entire missions program. He said, I've never seen anyone do what you did, but I let something not escalate or become drama. It was what had gone down, and he said, you saved our entire team from collapsing. He said, I would have had every parent pulling these kids off the field. And he said, Russ told me what you did, and I wanted to thank you. I said, did you know what was happening to me this summer when I didn't know who I was? I mean, I kind of had thought that missions were for me to grow. I didn't know that they were for me to go through this. And he said, yeah. I said, why'd you let me go to the mission field if you believed them and you heard it and you did nothing? He said, I was testing you. I was seeing what your persistence was. I said, so you like the fact that I got on a plane and flew out, being kicked out of the missions program, and I'm here? He said, yeah, we're filming you tonight because this team has broke the records, every mission team that has ever gone out from the school. He said, we have never had this many salvations. And we did it with a performance from Toymaker and Son. And then we preached our heart out. And I had a little interpreter. And when I passionately preached, she passionately interpreted. Only for years later to tell me, I wasn't preaching what you were saying. I changed it. I was the one that got them all saved. <laughs> Malou. <laughs> if you go through a lot, good for you. It works it off. It's painful. You'll cry over how mistreated you are and feel sorry for yourself and emotionally in every direction. I just don't have words. So I would say it takes a lot of maturity to utilize this principle and to learn what you should. So over the years, I've continued to put this to work. Also, I revamped my own missions program to actually try to build the character. Not trying to eliminate it, but uh, I will make you think you're going to die a few times. But other than that issue, you will know that the character of God is true and that you can trust him under anything that you go through. There's some things you can't let stand. You know, I think about Isaac and Rebecca in Genesis 25, 23, and they had a word from the Lord. And it clearly had told them they both agreed over the word that the younger boy would be over the older boy. And Isaac was, yeah, that's great. And they never expected that to be attacked, Genesis 25, 23. But years go by, and Rebecca did not strengthen that agreement with her husband. They didn't talk about it. They didn't remind themselves of, remember what the Lord said over this child? They didn't bring it up. They didn't talk it through. They didn't close the cracks. So what has to happen then is you have to go into another plan. And this dastardly plan comes from knowing someone a long time. And so you know where all their hot spots are. You know where their buttons are where you can push them. You know their weak spots. You know what will manifest them out. And Rebecca was looking through the keyhole, and she was saying, look at my husband. Look at what he's doing. He intends to give the blessing to his favorite son, Esau. I mean, what is he doing? Esau doesn't have a spiritual bone in his body. It's because he cooks good. He's saying something about my other son having smooth skin. 
He's making fun of him. He's saying that Joseph never worked a day in his life. So, Rebecca, submitted woman to God that she is. Put your hands over your heart, woman. She was clever enough to trick her husband into doing what the prophecy has said and what the will of God said. Because you didn't strengthen your allow and not allow in your agreement. It's conflict. Now, we could argue this forever, but if you're going to say, well, the will of God would have anyway, I'm going to say, well, maybe that is the will of God because it did happen, so what came to pass was God. Tricky little woman. But it comes from you not restoring your agreement and you not saying those words and it not being important enough to know it's not if you're going to get attacked, it's when you're going to get attacked. And when you say nothing, the years get between you. And what happens? Rebecca stood up and she acted on the authority of the agreed word. Basically, she said, I gave birth to him <laughs> and I'm not going to let it go down the wrong way. I'm going to give you other words. I'm not going to put up with an Esau dynasty. I'm going to do what it takes and set it in motion. I don't know, but I'm saying there are agreed things that I've experienced in life that you've got to keep your agreement. And it's the second time around that's so important. So in Genesis 27, 4, when you say nothing, guess what happens? And Rebecca said, it'll be on me. Jacob, go in there, impersonate your brother, and do it quickly. I know the recipe. And she taped that fur on him, and he smelled like a hunter. And he put an irreversible blessing on Jacob, just like the Lord had said, the elder will serve the younger. And Rebecca had a few more choice things to say. She goes, why is Esau marrying these heathen women? Are you going to just really sit down and let him marry two women that are not of the patriarch family? Swear to me, Jacob marries a woman that knows God. Agreement, covenant, relationship, when you say nothing. You know, unusual people that the Lord sends to me, unusual people that the Lord has sent to us, that would be you. <laughs> God sends very unusual people. Don't be looking around thinking it's someone else. It's you. <laughs> so we're going to end part one with this last story. Tom, this is a good place to him. A retired older businessman, and he was leading the chaplaincy program that I had built at our youth correctional facilities in my absence while I was away at school. And as prison ministry can be, because there's a little spiritual warfare, it was a bumpy course. It takes a lot of determination, persistence, sellout, preventative prayer, huspah, deranged. you got to be a little deranged. Prison ministry helps me with the derangement. College ministry confirms it. <laughs> <laughs> I try to tell all my stories about my college kids and make it like it's the prisoners, but y'all know your little dastardly deeds. So after a few years, something happened, and he prayed, and the Lord told him it was time to quit prison ministry, and he was going to stop going out there as a volunteer. You know, it was before texting, so he put his words down on paper very carefully, very precision, and he made his appointment with Dad. He came into Dad's office, who was the one that had recruited him in my absence, so my dad didn't have to handle everything. And he submitted his paper in an envelope. The shock on Tom's face was more than can be described without absolutely having been there yourself and had it on video. 
But Dad takes the envelope, and Tom says, would you read it? In my absence or right now, Dad takes the envelope, and without ever unsealing it or opening that big manila folder, my dad takes that envelope and rips it to shreds and hands it back to Tom. He knew what was inside there. Quit papers. <laughs> God's told me to quit papers. <laughs> the Lord is not with me anymore. Jack, honor me, honor me. Dad had a different idea. He looked Tom straight in the eyes. How do I know this speech? I've heard it. Tom, what do you think? You can't resign. This is the army. See you next week at the prison. Bye. <laughs> Tom put in more years of faithful service, and he was the one waiting for me when I returned and handed me the book back. You could say that Dad had no intent to let his resignation stand. Tom wore what happened in that office like a badge of honor. He loved telling the story more than Dad. He was like, he ripped it. My pastor just, no respect, ripped and ripped and ripped. My resignation, torn into pieces. My dad understood that scripture. Just by his instincts of what it takes to pastor, there's some things you can't let stand. Amen.